and just going on to other things, but there, there are a couple of things that I, I still want to get to. So I want to finish that up before we get into some of these other things. One of them being the book of Ezekiel. You may remember I truncated that uh, series. We were getting into some things we were beginning to increase some knowledge on, I think. And there were some areas there that I did not really have firmly, I think, in my understanding and how to go about explaining. But I think some of that was cleared up as well. And I want to get back to Ezekiel and finish it at some point when it makes sense. But there are a couple of other issues as well that I think we need to address that will be important and I think we can understand better than we ever have. So, with that much, I'll just leave it and we'll go on from there. Now, you'll remember we've spent several weeks talking about the subject of fear and fear of God, fear of man, and that type of thing. And I think we've begun to see, in focusing on it, that fear is a major topic. And we've covered a lot of ground in the last few sermons that I've given on the patriarchs and how they feared God. And when they did not fear God, or they allowed something to get in their way uh, of the fear of and obedience to God, that they had problems. And when they woke up, as David did, from some of the sins that he had committed, uh, they prayed some very heartfelt prayers, as in Psalm 51 with David, in which he repented deeply of his putting his own desires, his own will, his own lusts, his own uh, uh, way ahead of God's way. And it was a very traumatic time for him, and he had to get back where the fear of God was the main thing in his life, because he recognized that. And then we went through some of the Psalms and a few of the Proverbs, showing uh, how much he feared God, and that his whole life was that way. It was only when he strayed from that fear that he got in trouble. And Moses the same way. Let's spend a minute or two about that again, even though we've gone there. What about the situation where Moses struck the rock? Now, God had given him instruction to speak to the rock, and then the people had been murmuring and complaining, and he kind of lost his temper, and he not only spoke, but he struck the rock. Now, we all have our tempers, don't we? We all have our moments of weakness, and sometimes we get angry really without it being a righteous anger. We can get angry over the easiest of things. So to look at that from our day-to-day -day perspective, what was such a big deal in him striking the rock? God penalized him very heavily for that. In fact, when it came time to go into the promised land, he said, Moses, I want you to go off on the mountain and die while these people go in. Well, those people who were going in had never attained the same level 
of righteousness and relationship with God that Moses had attained in his life, by any means. Moses was a friend of God. Moses was one whom God spoke to on a fairly regular basis, face to face, probably more than with any other man who's ever lived. But he was heavily penalized for that. Now why? What was the big deal? Let's get it back to the very basics. His anger took over. What did it replace? It replaced his overriding respect and fear of God. He had trained himself through his life to put God first, to listen to God, to obey God. And in that moment, his own indignation, his own anger, replaced his fear of God, just momentarily. But it was a critical moment in the life of Israel, having just been delivered from slavery, having been led out by Moses, and God had used the man for a very, very powerful purpose in delivering Israel. So they murmured and complained as soon as things got uncomfortable, and then he lost his temper. Well, he was their leader. God was not going to allow that to happen because it was an act of idolatry. We're going to spend quite a bit of time on the subject of idolatry in the future because it is a very, very common sin. He put his own feelings, his own indignation, his own frustration ahead of obedience to God. Now that was a serious breach, and it was there for all Israel to see. So God could not allow it to go without some recompense. For Moses' own good, if he were to lead them righteously for the next 40 years, and for the sake of the people, he could not allow that to happen. But getting more into this then, I want to approach the prophets. We went through uh, the law, we went through other areas, Psalm, Proverbs, uh, looking at some of the instances of places where God addressed fear. But I want to go now through some of the prophecies because uh, these are written about the end time specifically and about you and me today. And therefore, they are very, very uh, germane to what we're facing at the moment. What is about to happen to the world, what is already beginning to happen to the world. Haiti is in a horrible state of destruction today, and some are blaming them for one reason or another as to why they're getting it and standing back in self-righteousness. Yes, there is a lot of voodooism, there's a lot of demonism in Haiti, but there's also a lot of it in the Methodist and the Catholic and the Evangelical Church. There's a lot of it in the whole world. 
Now, is their brand of paganism in that sense any worse than everybody else's paganism? But it's easy to throw rocks at somebody and say, this is their problem, that's somebody, you know, uh, we must be more righteous, it hasn't happened to us. Be very careful in those assessments, because it's coming here soon. And we are more responsible, more culpable than the people of Jamaica. We have this book in a way that they have never had this book. We are Israel as a nation. And God holds us far more accountable and far more responsible than he does anyone else on the face of the earth. And it's coming here. Just because it hit there doesn't make those people any worse than anybody anywhere else. I think we need to understand that and not be self-righteous ourselves about how good we are and blame somebody else for their trouble. Because the prophets show that it is going to be a universal thing that is coming. There will be earthquakes in different places. That was in one place. There'll be another one, as bad or worse, in another place, and another place, and another place, as this thing heats up and gets worse and worse. In fact, there's been a great increase in earthquakes, I'm told, over the last few weeks, two or three months, uh, than there was prior to that. So, this is something that is just going to get worse and worse. My heart goes out to those people in Jamaica, just as it will to everyone else on this earth and this nation when it comes to our shores. Because come it will. How quickly do we forget New Orleans and other places? Of course, there's a lot of voodooism and demonism in New Orleans. Well, God may strike some of those places first. Uh, that's a possibility. But we need to be very, very careful in how we judge those things and in how self-righteous we can easily get. Let's go to Isaiah 8. This is a passage that I have used quite a bit because it talks about the New World Order. It talks about the what it calls confederacy or it could be as easily translated conspiracy in verse 12 that is coming here in the end time. Chapter 7 talks about a, an alliance that occurred between Syria and Ephraim, or the northern ten tribes, against Judah. And God made a prophecy in that chapter, in verse 8, that within 65 years from a time, a conspiracy had been hatched that Ephraim would be destroyed. And I think that that is a reference in prophecy to today. Does anyone remember right offhand when we started using... Emmanuel, what year? The last feast we took in Zion. Last feast in Zion, but what year was that? Two years ago. Well, to we be, feast, be. We had two feasts here, so that would be 2007. 2007, okay. I, I say that because of this. Uh, it said within... Sixty-five years, within that period of time, Ephraim would be destroyed. And then he gave a very curious sign here, because he had told 
Ahaz, the king of Judah, to ask for a sign about whether this conspiracy against Judah would occur or not. And it is interesting to me that God said, well, you won't ask for a sign, which was probably a good thing in Ahaz's behalf, to say, I don't need a sign from you, Lord. You said it'd happen. It'll happen. But God wanted to give a sign. God is the one who pushed it here. He said, uh, verse 13, he said, Hear you now, house of David, is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God also? Therefore the Eternal himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now notice, butter and honey shall he eat that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. At what age does a child begin to grasp the difference between good and evil? And at what age would they begin to eat butter and honey? In those days, they weaned a child from, the, from nursing when they were two to three years of age. Uh, do it much quicker now for the most part, but that was about the time they did. I don't know when you would say that a child would begin to eat butter and honey. Uh, but to know good from evil... What are some estimates? Somebody tell me, what time does a child have the maturity to begin to know really the difference between good and evil? Guestimates? Three years? I, yeah, three? I, I would say roughly, my, in my own assessment, three to four years probably. They're old enough to, they've learned enough that they kind of begin to be able to discern what's right and what's wrong. They've been being taught by parents, and they begin to get a pretty good idea maybe by then. That was kind of why I was curious when we started using that, because Matthew does say there that you shall call his name as Jesus or Yahshua or Joshua, however you want to term it, depending on your level of knowledge of Greek and Hebrew and so on. But it said, they shall call his name Emmanuel, and it was something down in the future. And it's interesting to me that in these prophecies of Isaiah, which are end-time prophecies, written after the captivity, that he would be saying that as a sign. I think we're getting close to the 65 years since some conspiracies Confederacies were formed in terms of the United Nations, in terms of a new world order that they would begin to work on. They tried it with a League of Nations and it fell on its face, but the same people behind the scenes are the ones who helped start the United Nations and various other organizations aimed at taking over rulership of the world. Now it has advanced a great deal since World War II, but it was right after World War II that those things began to take place. 1947, I think, when Ambassador College started. So the world started its move toward educating the world openly in a new world order about the same time God began uh, a movement to start his work, his end-time work on the face of the earth. Now, he'd worked through Herbert Armstrong in a very small organization, but it was in the late 40s that it began to expand, or the training began, but it didn't really start expanding until the 50s. Uh, 
But the seed was planted with Ambassador College. And we're getting to the point that that's almost 65 years ago, whether you take 1945 or 47 or that general area of time. And who knows what kind of deals were made behind the scenes, maybe even a little earlier, before they came together and had a big meeting and actually formed those things officially. There are things we don't know, and I don't know when God began counting the 65 years. But I find it interesting that he brought it to our attention that Emmanuel was a proper name for Christ that would be used in the end time, and that we learned it a couple of years ago, uh, when the 65 years before Ephraim, which we now believe to be this country, would be destroyed, that it be not a people. So, take your pick when a child knows when to do good from evil and starts eating, let's say, truly solid food. Uh, that could also begin at age three to four, I suppose. Even if they take them off nursing, they don't necessarily start feeding them steak every night when they're two years old. There's baby food and there's mashed up stuff and they've got to get their teeth. And, you know, there's, uh, but until they're three or four years old, they're not certainly eating like adults. And so maybe butter and honey has to do with adult food. I don't know. But eating normally like somebody else would. Uh, maybe this thing is not too far off. And as we see things in the news today, there is obviously now openly spoken of a confederacy toward ruling the world. And even the new president of I think I mentioned this, the new president of, of Europe said that the Copenhagen meetings were an arm of or a function of the New World Order. So they put it out there very openly in the news. There's nothing hidden anymore. It's not a secret conspiracy. It's an open movement. So God addresses that. And Emmanuel means God with us. If you go to chapter 8, it said, verse 10, Take counsel together and it shall come to nothing. He's speaking of the, the, world, the nations of the world associating themselves against God. From verse 9 on down. Uh, Speak the word and it shall not withstand, for God is with us. Now you could translate God is with us there. Emmanuel. In other words, go ahead, make your association. It's nothing to worry about because we have Emmanuel. We have God with us. So I think that coming to understand and starting to use that name is clearly important. God will have to be with his people at the end, otherwise we will be in serious trouble. For the Eternal spoke thus to me with a strong hand, and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people, saying, Say not a confederacy to all them to whom this people shall say a conspiracy, confederacy, neither fear you their fear, nor be afraid." Don't worry about the New World Order. Don't fear the same fear that they fear. And if you get on the Internet or on talk radio, and you have people who are fear mongers who are so worried about this, 
and so fearful. And God says, don't fear their fear. Why? Because if we're obeying God and we are His people, He will be with us. It says, sanctify the eternal of hosts Himself, and let Him be your fear, and let Him be your dread. I think sometimes we get into the frame of mind in watching what is coming, that we begin to have a great fear and dread of the new world order and the draconian measures they're going to bring against the world. But God says, don't fear their fear. Don't be afraid of it. Let God be your fear. And he shall be for a sanctuary. We go to God as our refuge, as our sanctuary, as our way to be safe. You see, fear and faith are antonyms. They are opposites when we're speaking of fear of man and the world as opposed to faith in God. So when we fear man, what we are showing is a lack of trust and faith in God. Because we're more concerned about what the world might do to us than we are abiding in patience and faith and waiting for God's answer. That's what it really comes down to. And in the sense that Moses committed idolatry, it causes us to be breaking the first commandment and committing idolatry. Because idolatry, by and large, is putting anything ahead of God. So if we fear men, and fear what they might do to us, if we fear the new world order and Satan and what it might do to us, then it is replacing trust and faith in God. Now, it is not wrong to be aware of what is coming down, but our reaction is the key. When we see it happening, and it's okay to look at some of it, not that it should become something that we rivet our attention on so that we fail to spend the time with God we need to spend with Him. So that we're not distracted by it. It's okay to watch it to a degree. We should be watchful. We should be seeing what's coming. We should be aware. But then that awareness should spawn in us a desire to seek God and trust Him and put our faith in Him so that we don't worry about what is about to come down. And that's the point He's making here. Don't fear it, fear me. I will be your sanctuary, I will be your refuge. We don't need to react like the world is. We don't need to go out and buy submachine guns, AK-47s, we don't need to be uh, putting up a wall around ourselves, a defense, a protection. And in fact, doesn't he tell us that villages have to be built with Jerusalem, the church, and probably around physical Jerusalem as we now understand it? 
but they are to be towns without walls. Now, there's a distinct reason for that. We are not to fortify it. We are not to make defenses for ourselves. As was read in the sermonette, he who lives by the sword will perish with the sword. It is not for us to protect ourselves. It is for us to be vulnerable, to live without walls or defenses. And in prophecy, walls can be a symbol of military defense or whatever. God wants us to be vulnerable. He wants us to be so that we could be run over very easily. And then to trust Him to take care of us. To become a wall of fire, a defense, whether it's literal or symbolic, really is, does not matter. Because He is our refuge. He is our sanctuary. Now we need to have attitudes and live our lives in such a way that we demonstrate to Him that that is our faith, that that is our trust, that we will not worry about what man will do to us, but we will fear God and trust Him with our lives. That is a tall order. That is not something that comes natural to man. It is natural, it is human, to fear others. Most people who have ever lived on the face of this earth have lived in fear. They have built palaces, they have built walled cities, they have laid in their beds at night fearful of whether they would be attacked in the night. It used to be that way in this country. The Indians feared the white man attacking their villages, and the white man feared the Indians attacking them if they slept out in the open. So they circled the wagons at night as they came west. They posted guards. They worried. They lived in fear. Those are small examples. The Middle Ages, Crusades, you name all the wars that have gone on on the face of the earth. And men generally have lived in fear of their very lives. It is unusual in our society that we go to bed at night without much fear. So far. That will change very rapidly. But God is telling us ahead of time, it's coming. It's been in here all along. Now we're beginning to see it before our very eyes. Are we prepared? What will our reactions be? Do we truly trust God? Now Matthew 24 gives us a very clear warning, and it is a very good companion scripture with Isaiah 8. It says that all these things will come down and that they will want to kill us. And it will get so bad, finally, that he says, When you see the abomination of desolation set up on the altar of God, which will be established, then is the time to flee to the place that God has prepared and to be praying ahead of time that God will account you worthy to escape. None of us will be perfect. 
we will have to have His forgiveness and His mercy, and we will have to be looking to Him and trusting Him, or He will not protect us. And He will make those decisions about who goes and who does not go. Just having the knowledge and knowing it is going to come, and then the signal comes to flee, does not mean you will get there safely. (coughs) It has to be with God's protection and His help. That's how violent this is going to get. So I think we need to do one of two things. If we will not be willing to put our fear in God and trust Him as our sanctuary and live our lives in such a way that we show Him He is first in our lives and that we will trust Him to take care of us, then we need to change our approach and we need to start buying guns and ammunition and start building some bunkers and foxholes somewhere. And we need to get ready because this thing is almost upon us. Now, do we need to have a town meeting and change our direction here? Are we going to trust God? It's coming down to the crux of the matter very shortly. Are we willing to put our life in His hands and not use Emmanuel as a doctrinal upgrade for the end time, but to believe that God is with us and live as if God is with us and trust Him with our lives. That needs to be our direction, our focus, our purpose. And failing that, we'd better get busy doing something else quickly. It's almost too late. So which is it going to be? You can't sit on the fence. If you're going to live through what's coming, you'd either better get ready physically and hope that you can shoot straight in lots, or you'd better put your faith, trust, and confidence in Almighty God. Now, I've seen enough of you here in this room, that I don't think we'll need a town meeting. I think you were committed to doing exactly what I'm talking about here today. On the other hand, I think it's good that we discuss these scriptures, that we consider what God has to say, and be sure that since that is the path we have chosen that we stay on that path and we work at getting up it. And I say up it, not just on it, or we could say down the path, but it is always a rough, twisting, winding, uphill path. It is not broad, straight, and downhill. That's the way mankind generally goes and is prone to go. Climbing mountains is tough. And the mountain we have to climb in coming out of living in the flesh and coming to walk in the Spirit 
is a tough, ruddy, steep path. But it is the path that you and I have chosen. Now we just need to be sure that we stay on it and stay with it and get in the position we should be in so that we literally can truly trust in God as our refuge. And that's what he's telling us to do here. Chapter 11. If you need a good example of that, let's go to Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a rod out of the stem of Jesse, and a branch shall grow up out of his roots. This is a direct prophecy of Christ. I do believe it is also a prophecy of Zerubbabel. If you examine the word branch through the prophecies, you will find that there are some things there that physically need to be done before Christ himself comes. But Zerubbabel then is a type of the Christ who is to come. And the Spirit of the Eternal shall rest upon him, the Spirit of wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge and of the fear of the Eternal. So when it talks about righteousness and holiness and proper attitudes and wisdom and understanding, it's interesting that he throws in this concept that we're discussing, the fear of the eternal. And shall make him of quick understanding in the fear of the eternal. He picks out of that list of good things there and proper attributes and emphasizes the fear of God. Quick understanding in the fear of the eternal. And he shall not judge after the sight of his eyes, neither reprove after the hearing of his ears, but will look to God to make righteous judgments. But to dispel and remove idolatry, you have to have fear of God. It is part of the deal. If you don't have an awe-inspiring fear, of the one who created the universe, then in time of trouble, of dismay, of difficulty, or danger, you will begin to have human fear, and you will set God aside and look to other means for protection and help and strength. It's all about faith. That's why it says that the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom as we looked at in Proverbs in my last sermon. You're beginning to get some wisdom when you begin to fear God. Without that fear, you will turn to other solutions rather than to Him. What we are about to see happen on the face of this earth, which is going to be greater horror horror than man has ever faced. You know, even in the flood in Noah's day, when all but eight souls drowned, they did not live in great fear in the build-up to that flood. There was a crackpot who worked for a hundred years on a boat, and he was laughed at a lot. But what he did and what he was doing did not inspire fear of the eternal God in the hearts of men. 
Even when it started raining, it did not probably scare them unduly. When it began to come up around their knees, it probably began to scare them quite a bit. And when it got up to their chin, and they'd climb the highest hill they could find, it scared them a lot. But it was for a short while, wasn't it? didn't last long. I imagine we all here have had the feel of a fear of drowning, have we not? I have. It's very scary, panicking. So they experienced that for a short while, and blub, it was over. What is about to come is going to last for a longer period of time. Several years. And it's going to be very frightful. Why? Is this really necessary? Wouldn't it scare the world enough if Christ just appeared in the clouds and said, I really exist and I'm coming back? Wouldn't they begin to have a great fear? Well, there'd be a certain amount of fear. But it would not be the type and the kind of fear that would inspire obedience, that would inspire worshiping God above all. Even after Christ returns, some will not obey. It's not going to scare them sufficiently. It says if the Egyptians don't obey, don't come up to keep the feast, they'll get no rain. So it's not going to be automatic just because he comes back that the whole world just says, ah, yes, Lord, I will obey you. It won't happen that way. He's going to have to kill over 90% of the people on the earth or allow Satan and the armies of the world to do most of the dirty work. But it's going to happen. And still, it will not inspire the worship and the proper fear of God in all people on earth. That is truly amazing, isn't it? But that much trouble, that much difficulty, doesn't do it. Well, what about you and me? We still think thoughts and do things that we shouldn't, don't we? And yet we understand the Word of God. But it is not such a palpable and real thing on a day-to-day basis that we are able to turn it around and quit our infractions. We still allow a certain amount of sin, a certain amount of bad attitude, a certain amount of anger, a certain amount of hatred, a certain amount of whatever uh, feelings you might experience in our minds and hearts and emotions. Because it shows that we may be beginning to have wisdom, but we're not all wise yet. We have not learned the fear of God as much as we need it yet. And therefore, our lives are still beset with trials, troubles, tribulations, punishments, difficulties, day by day, week by week, and month by month. It says in Psalm 77 that we limit God. David talks about limiting God. Now, he is the best parent there is. And yet, 
He doesn't spoil us rotten and give us everything we want when we want it. He makes us wait. He makes us change our attitudes. He allows trials, troubles, and tribulations to come on us that He could easily remove, but He does not because He's working on our attitudes. As the perfect Father, He knows that needs to be done. He would love to give us many things that we would desire, but we limit Him. Now, to put another scripture with Psalm 77 on that, I was thinking this would make a good sermonette the other day when I was reading Psalm 77, but I don't give sermonettes. <coughs> but you could boil it down to about 12 to 15 minutes and make a very good point. And that's what sermonettes really should be about. Put it with Christ's situation when he went to Nazareth, where it says he could not do any major miracles there, he only managed to heal a very few sick folk. Their attitudes limited what he was able to accomplish. He could not give them everything he would have loved to give them. He saw a lot of problems in Nazareth and a lot of probably grievous illnesses that it wasn't possible for him to fix. Their attitudes limited what he was able to do for them. Now, we want God's blessings. We want God's good favor. And yet, sometimes our very attitudes and our approach will limit what He can do for us. Maybe your kid wants a new bicycle or something. And yet, they're in a pouty, nasty, rotten attitude. And you know that that's not a good time to give them a new bicycle. You want to see a change in attitude. You want to see them sweet and loving, responsive, respectful, obedient. And when you see that, you're inclined to give them what it is that they desire. And God's the same way. If He gave us everything we wanted it when we wanted it, pretty soon we'd forget Him entirely. Isn't that what happens to rich kids? They get everything they want. Parents won't take time with the child. They'll just give them everything they want. And they just get worse and worse. And pretty soon, they despise the parent for being so generous with them and at the same time not putting checks and balances on them and creating boundaries that they cannot go beyond. They get insecure. They get frustrated and insecurity and frustration breed more rebellion because there are not boundaries. Children want boundaries, believe it or not, because it gives them a safety, a security to know that their parents will not let them go beyond those boundaries because innately they've gotten old enough to know the difference between good and evil. And even though they may be tempted to do evil, they know they should not go there. And if the parents do not help keep them within their boundaries, they will go there all too often. Not always, but all too often. So even though they may resent the boundary, they know in their heart of hearts that that boundary is good. And you're helping them keep from hurting themselves. 
And that's the kind of parent God is. So, if we wonder why we're not receiving God's blessings, maybe we need to analyze whether or not we are in the attitude we should be in. Or whether we need to make some adjustments. Now, I'm not saying these things to put us down and to make us feel bad. I know that in this last few weeks, there have been some times when I've thought about you, us. And it just occurred to me the other day, when I was thinking about us here, because I'm concerned that we be what we should be before God, that this is probably the most generous, helpful bunch of people that I have ever known. I don't think there's anybody here that would not do anything you asked of them if you had a need or a desire that was as it should be. Everybody here would bend over backward to help you. And there are people here who give time and energy and money and help each other in whatever way they see they can. And I applaud you and thank you for that. Sometimes I get the feeling that I think Paul had when he said something about the foolishness of preaching. We shouldn't need to preach. Now, God instituted it and ordained it and said that it should be done. If we were all what we ought to be, no one should ever need to give a sermonette or a sermon or a corrective word in any way. Because we would simply read God's Word and we would understand it and would simply do everything it says. That would be optimal. But it doesn't happen that way. So we have to be reminded and cajoled and encouraged and pushed and hammered on and everything else to get us where we should be. Even as a parent has to work with and punish and chasten and deny children to work on getting their attitudes the way they ought to be. And God ordained it to be that way. And he says, if I chasten you, I'm proving that I love you. Hebrews 12. He loves us enough to care to try to work on our attitudes. There are some parents, you know, who just give up and say, kids will be kids, what will I do? And they just give up and let them go. You going to be that way? Be that way. It isn't worth the time, the energy, and the effort to work with them to get their attitudes right. And sometimes it is a formidable challenge. And we sometimes present a formidable challenge to God. But we've been hammered on here, and believe me, when I'm hammering on you, I'm hammering on me because I use the Word of God, and it cuts both ways. It cuts your direction, it cuts my direction. Some of the things I yell about the most are the things that I need the most. Don't you understand that yet? But I do see positive results. And I appreciate that in you. That you're willing to take it, and you run with it, and you do something about it, and you work at it until you make some changes. 
And I know that God appreciates that, and at some point He's going to turn and He's going to smile and His face is going to shine on us, and He's going to reward the hard work that we've been putting in to try to get ourselves where we ought to be. Now, we're not perfectly there yet. Don't get me wrong. I understand that. But give a little credit where credit is due. And I think that you people do deserve an awful lot of credit for hanging in there when so many are quitting. The church of God is shrinking because people are giving up and quitting or going a different direction or whatever. But to your credit, you're hanging in there and you're fighting and you're working at it in spite of it sometimes being, it seems, a thankless task and very difficult and sometimes it appears like we're spinning our wheels and not getting anywhere. Or at least if you're anything like I am, that's the way you feel sometimes. But if you're going to make progress, you've got to keep on going. When you're stuck in sand, when you're stuck in snow, and you spin the tires, and you can't go anywhere, sometimes you have to get out and make some adjustments with a shovel or whatever and fix things. Let a little air out of the tires sometimes. And then you have traction. But our leadership, both humanly and in Christ himself, one of the biggest keys here in Isaiah 11 is coming to have a true fear of God. So that begins to impart to us the kind of knowledge, the kind of understanding that will cause us to do the things that show our respect and our love for God and then it removes some of the limitations that we ourselves put upon Him. It is really our hands, our, our actions that have tied God's hands <coughs> so that He quit blessing the church and scattered it and spewed it out of His mouth. And as we repent and change and grow and become wholehearted and seek Him with our whole hearts, then He's going to turn back and smile on us and bless us because we will have quit limiting what He can do for us. It isn't God's fault that the church became what it did. We let down, and it was our fault. And when we go to Him and fix it, then He will smile and bless again. And that is in our future. Let's go to Isaiah 25. I am not moving along at the speed I wanted, but I suppose that's okay. He says, O Eternal, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name. For you have done wonderful things. Your counsels of old are faithfulness and truth. God never broke a treaty, a promise, a covenant, an agreement with anyone that he had ever made. He always kept his half of the bargain. Always did what he said he would do. Even to punishing if Humans broke that covenant or treaty. He has always been faithful. For you, you have made of a city a heap, of a defense city a ruin, a palace of strangers to be no city. It shall never be built. 
In other words, if God said, if you disobey me and I will curse you, he would do that. And he's shown that he would do that in some cases. He said Jerusalem would be a desolation for many generations. And I believe the true Jerusalem has been just that. God is not a liar. He is telling the truth. And I believe that the false Jerusalem over there in the Middle East has not been desolate because it is not the Jerusalem he spoke of when he made the prophecy. If that Jerusalem is the true Jerusalem, then that proves that God is a liar because it has not been desolate for many generations. (coughs) So there you have it. Verse 3, he said, God's name is exalted, and if he decrees destruction, it will occur. Then he says, therefore, or as a result of what he said in verses 1 and 2, shall the strong people glorify you. The city of the terrible nations shall fear you. For you have been a strength to the poor or the humble, a strength to the needy in his distress, a refuge from the storm, a shadow from the heat, when the blast of the terrible ones is a storm against the wall. He's echoing what he had said in chapters 7 and 8. This is a prophecy that God will keep. He will be a refuge to those that fear him. We are supposed to look at the past, at the biblical history, and what God has done to strengthen us, to empower us, to glorify Him. As we see the handwriting on the wall, if you will, of what is about to happen. Isaiah is saying, you need to look to the past to understand how to cope with the future. And that's why I'm taking us through all these scriptures. Because these things are real. And they are now upon us. And it's getting more and more so every day. You are beginning to feel the effects of the future world government. You are feeling it in your pocketbooks. You are feeling it in many ways. Because they are drawing the circle ever tighter and they are destroying the society and the culture and the economies of the world. And they set us up for it by increasing credit and making things easier and looking prosperous in preparation of pulling the rug out from under us. And it is not comfortable when that rug begins to move when they jerk on it, is it? We are feeling the effects. And therefore, we need to consider what we've been talking about in this series of sermons. And to look to God and glorify Him. Because when this thing is done, the whole world will have come to have a certain fear of God. Some will not yet have been convinced to the point of obedience. But they're going to know who God is. Now, we're going to skip Ezekiel in this series. We're not quite there yet. 
but I'll bring it up now. Because the word fear does not appear in the book of Ezekiel. It's all through Isaiah. Quite a bit in Jeremiah. And we won't examine all of them by any means. But it's not even mentioned in Ezekiel as such. But there is a recurring phrase there that I've focused on in the past where it says over and over and over and over again, and they shall know that I am the Eternal. Now, whether or not they will have instilled in them enough fear to obey Him is another matter. But they're going to know who God is. And that's what he's saying right here. A little bit different way, but he's discussing fear in, specific, in specificity, I should say. Chapter 29, verse 23. <clears throat> but when he sees his children, the work of my hands, in the midst of him, they shall sanctify my name and sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and shall fear the God of Israel. They also that erred in spirit shall come to understanding, and they that murmured shall learn doctrine. What is about to happen and what has been happening in the church is going to cause people to be humbled and to become teachable and ready to listen. It is going to bring great fear. Now, the scattering by and large to this point has not done that. That has not been the effect. Because most have not recognized that they and we had lapsed into a Laodicean approach. Most still think they are Philadelphians and that they are okay and that they will go to Petra. That's still primarily their view of themselves. All you others may not, but I still will, is the view. Now, there is a certain group, and maybe there are others as well, it just comes to mind, who have left Philadelphia Church of God, and that has been preached to them for many years now, that that particular organization is the Philadelphians. So they have pulled out because they could not abide what is going on in so-called Philadelphia, and now they have come to see themselves as reforming Laodiceans. They aren't Philadelphia anymore because they're not in that particular organization. So they've accepted a few of them that they truly are Laodiceans, which we all should have come to see a long time ago. But at least a few are waking up to the realities. And that all those organizations are Laodicean, just like you and I have become. I don't care what you call yourself. If it looks like a duck and quacks like a duck and walks like a duck, it's a Laodicean. Now, I mixed my metaphors, but I think you can figure that one out. Thirty-three. <clears throat> Let's go to 
verse 5. The eternal is exalted, for he dwells on high. He has filled Zion with judgment and righteousness. Now, there is a group of the church that Hebrews 12 indicates is Zion, the true church of God in the end time. The God is going to begin to bless, and he is going to fill them with judgment and righteousness. Isaiah 54 talks about how it will be his righteousness, not our own. Last verse or two. And wisdom and knowledge shall be the stability of your times. Wisdom and knowledge will be the stability of our times at the end when God fills Zion with, with uh, judgment and righteousness. Well, what is the beginning of wisdom? Fearing God. When His people begin to truly fear Him and are in awe and worship of Him in the right way, things are going to start going good at some point. He has to know for sure. Just because we might seek God one day when our tail is in a crack does not mean that we will do the same tomorrow when our tail is not in a crack. He has to know for sure. Like he said of Abraham, now I know. I thought you were what you should be, but I tested you. And I tried you, and now I know it. And he has to know it about you and me. <clears throat> but wisdom, fear of God, and knowledge will stabilize us. We need to be stable. It will be the stability of your times and strength of salvation. The fear of the eternal is his treasure. When we fear him in the right way, fear him enough to obey him, to think his thoughts, to walk as Christ walked, then that is a treasure to him. His people become a treasure. And fearing him and walking in his ways is what turns us into treasure. He will treasure us. What does treasure mean? It's something that's dear to your heart. It's something that's more important than your other possessions. You, in your own home, put certain things in safer places than you do others. Some things you allow to be right down in the middle of things, in the middle of the living room, and if they get kicked over or kicked around, it's not that big a deal. But there are certain other things you put in the jewelry box or back in the back of somewhere because you value it, you treasure it more than you do other things. Now, God treasures those who seek Him, serve Him, obey Him, worship Him, above everything else. Those are what he treasures the most. Let's go to 35. <clears throat> this is all through here. 
Chapter 35 of Isaiah, verse 3. Strengthen you the weak hands. Confirm the feeble knees. Same things he says in Hebrews 12. When he says, when I chasten you, uh, straighten your lame legs and feet. Put them back in the way. Strengthen the feeble. Say to them that are of a fearful heart. Every one of us here, to one degree or another, has a fearful heart. Off and on, from time to time, we get fearful about something or another, don't we? All right, here's what you say to someone who has a fearful heart. Be strong. Fear not. When we get that way, we are to be told, be strong, fear not. We are not to be allowed to be in our fearful attitude. We are not to be patted on the back and say, it's okay, dearie, or whatever, and to be allowed to continue it. Living in fear is not a good situation. I do not like to be scared. Some of you visit the Grand Canyon, you stand 40 feet back and look out. You do not get close to it because you fear falling in. Now, that's not a necessarily wrong kind of fear. We don't want to tempt God and say, it's okay, I'll just jump in the Grand Canyon and He'll teach me to fly. We understand the law of gravity. And it is a grave matter sometimes. Gravity. It's a base. Grave is the basis for the word. So, yes... We need to have a respect for heights. We need to have a respect for some of the physical laws that God put on the earth and not tempt Him by being stupid. Stupid, perhaps, would be a better pronunciation, but stupid works better. When somebody's weak and fearful, tell them, don't be that way, be strong. Fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, even God with a recompense. He will come and save you. Now, that's the rest of the instruction. The first is, be strong, don't fear, trust God. Depend on God. That's what removes fear. Is there anyone here who enjoys fear? Could I see your hand? It's easier to count that way. None of us would like to be scared. Here's the answer. Trust God. It's easy to get scared of conditions on this earth. Conditions in our society. And so much the more as the things God says He is going to allow and cause start coming upon society. You see, there's a big lesson being learned in Haiti. It's a weak one so far. But I'll bet there are some people down there who are not used to praying who've said some prayers in the last 
few days. Wouldn't you imagine that? They may not really know the true God. They may not really know how to pray or what to say. But there have been some people who have been saying, Oh, God, help us. That is at least a start in the right direction. And that is only the very beginning of things that are going to happen on this earth. We know better. Let's listen. Let's put our faith, our trust, where it belongs. We already know what to pray. We already know what to say, don't we? Then let's say it. Let's go there. Let's cast all our care upon Him because He cares for us. Can we do that? When you have problems with jobs, when you have problems with health, when you have problems with bullies, when you have problems with relatives, when you have problems with yourself, can you learn to put it on God? Nobody cares for us more than he does. That's why Paul said that. Cast your cares on him because he cares for us. I think that's the Phillips translation. It doesn't put it quite that way in the King James, but it's close. All right, let's go to chapter 41. Now, this is a very dynamic and interesting section here, beginning in chapter 40, because it goes through and talks about Hezekiah in the previous chapters. And I think that there certainly is an analogy that can be drawn between Herbert Armstrong and Hezekiah. Uh, Herbert Armstrong went all over the world showing what he had in the treasure house of, of God's church. And he did have a heart attack and was granted some years to live afterward, uh, somewhat ineffectually. But there at the end of chapter 39 where it talks about Hezekiah, and he had been given that extra 15 years to live. And then Isaiah told him that uh, his children would go into uh, the captivity of Babylon and be emasculated and become eunuchs. And, and Hezekiah was... Hez- was content to say, but in my day there will be peace. He wasn't too worried about his kids being neutered in Babylon. And sure enough, after Herbert Armstrong died, his other son died, and his sons in the church, the leaders, evangelists, pastors, whatever, for the most part became spiritually neutered in Babylon. That's where we are today. We became powerless eunuchs, spiritually speaking. That is the analogy that God uses to show that the power to be strong and regenerative would be removed from the church. And that's what we we have become as a church. There's not much power, you know. Can't get anything done, to use his analogy. But in chapter 40, he begins to show a message that has to be preached at the end. And how it will be done and how that he is going to raise up a people to be his witnesses. 
We've seen that in chapters 42, 3, 44, through there, and ending there in chapter 44 and 45 about Osiris showing up, who would be shown the treasures, physical treasures of God. And then it goes on to show by 54 that he will again bring his blessings upon his people, the church. So the context here is what we are beginning to live and look forward to today. So that makes it a very important time for us to consider. So I want to pick it up here in chapter 41 and verse 10 so that you understand the context of this. He's talking to us right now, to the church and those who would be obeying him and serving him. Fear you not, for I am with you. Now there you have Emmanuel spelled out again. You could translate that from the Hebrew. Fear not because of Emmanuel. I am with you. Be not dismayed or troubled, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. Yes, I will uphold you with the right hand of my righteousness. What a powerful verse that is. Do we grasp that? That in this time of trouble we're entering, and we're supposed to be telling the world that all flesh withers as grass, as it says in chapter 40, verses 7 and 8, and telling them to behold their God, as it says in verse 9, that there really is a God. You really can look to Him. And unless you're going to wither like the grass, you'd better look to Him. That is the message at the end of this age. All flesh is His grass and you're going to see it wither and burn up like the flowers of the field. And you'd better look to God. Behold your God. That is the message that has to be cried in the spiritual wilderness that is the world and is the church today. Now that is not going to be popular. It is not popular. How popular are we? We're not. We're telling them that they and we have all been Laodicean and lukewarm. And we've all been spewed out. Is that a popular message? If we had to tear down this building and build a bigger one, we can't even fill this one up. It is not popular. It is not popular to tell the world, which has to be done, that they need to turn to God. They won't do it. They're going to fear the beast and take his mark so that they can buy and sell and survive in the new world order. So what you and I believe and what we preach here is very unpopular. And the more it's known, and it will be, the less popular it will get. Believe you me. So, we have the encouragement of verse 10 of Isaiah 41. Behold, all they that were angry against you shall be ashamed and confounded. They shall be as nothing, and they that strive with you shall perish. Now that's true of the two witnesses at the end, isn't it, according to Revelation 11? If they strive against them and try to hurt or harm or kill them, 
fire will come out and destroy them. He says in this same chapter, down there a little further, I think, I believe it's this one. Yeah, verse 15. I will make you a new sharp threshing instrument. Having you shall thresh the mountains and beat them small and shall make the hills as chaff. Mountains and hills, big governments and little ones. God will mow down before His people. He's speaking of you and me here. If we're included among those people. And I think we have every opportunity to be among them. Because we know and we understand these things. And we have opportunity to repent and grow and trust God and fear Him so that we can be included. Now, I'm going to be very, very disappointed if we miss out. Aren't you? Let's don't let that happen. Let's just not let it happen, brethren. Let's be part of the prophecy of Isaiah 40, 41, 42 through 54 and on. We have the opportunity. And I'll tell you this. Everyone in this room, God wants there. He wants us to be included in this prophecy as His witnesses. He would not have opened our minds and showed us these things unless He wanted us there. Now, if we want to be there half as much as He wants us there, or less, we'll be there. We have every opportunity being handed to us on a silver platter. You've been handed that opportunity. Will we accept it, run with it, and accomplish it? I believe we will. I believe we will. Just the very fact we're willing to sit here and listen to this and wrestle with ourselves and how to apply it and how to live it shows that we're truly interested in the process and want to be there. And I think we'll succeed because God says He will help us if we work at it. So He says, don't be fear or fearful. I'll take care of you. You don't have to worry about it. Planning and zoning problems are not part of this, really. Everybody... And this nation has a planning and zoning department. And they have their goals and their purposes and their little rules that they want complied with. We have not been asked to do anything that everybody else in the country isn't asked to do, basically. That's not something we need great deliverance from. That's just something we need to do. But there are some big issues that will come up where we're going to need God's help. And that's a fact. Let's go to chapter... Well, let's read verses 13 and 14 here not while we're here. For I, the Eternal, your God, will hold your right hand, saying to you, Fear not, I will help you. At some point, when things get pretty bad, He's going to take our right hand and hang on to us. Fear not, you worm, Jacob. <laughs> he knows we're worms. He knows we are but flesh. 
But he says, don't fear, I will take care of you. What's that song? He will take care of you on every day and every way or something like that. God will take care of you. That's what he says. Fear not, O worm Jacob, you men of Israel. I will help you, says the Eternal, and your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Then he says he'll make us a sharp threshing teeth or harvesting machine out of us. Not only will he help us, he's going to give us the power and the strength so that we're no longer spiritual eunuchs, but we have the power to back up the things we preach. God is going to give that. And I want to be there. I want every one of you to be there. This isn't something that we cannot seize. We can grab hold of this. We can hang on to this. It's an absolute promise from God in heaven. The only question then is, do we believe in that God? Do we trust Him with our lives? And will we go forward and do what He says, even if we can't buy and sell at all? Buying and selling has always been a big deal for you and me. Hasn't it? We've always liked the idea of being able to have money and go to the store and buy what we want. It is a way of life. Now that way of life is going to be removed. It is only going to be offered to those who will worship Satan and the beast. Anyone else, that way of life will be taken away from. Are you ready for that? They won't let you in Walmart unless you have the mark. Or any other store. Sorry. How could you be denied Walmart? In Walmart we trust. If it's Chinese, it's got to be good. Walmart, if you obey God, is going to be removed from you, and so is McDonald's. Ooh, remove it yourself. Well, I mean McDonald's. And a lot of what you get from Walmart as well. But I'm making a spiritual point here. I'm not telling you don't go to the stores right now. The mark has not been imposed upon us, and we can still buy and sell. And that may go on for another week or two. Or maybe even more. I don't know how long. Might be months, or might even be a year or two or three or four left where you can still go there. Boy, that's a relief to think we might have a little bit left. I don't know how much is left. But it will be taken away. Now, we're getting down to brass tacks here. Do we trust God? Will we eat? Will we be taken care of? Now, he tells a group of people there in Isaiah 
54, 55. Come, have milk. That's in 55, I think. And wine without money. So he's going to take away from us the ability to buy and sell or let the beast do it. But then he says he will take care of us and we won't need money to have food. Now, I like that idea. But do I believe it enough to serve God rather than the beast? That is the only question that remains. And it will have to be answered fairly soon. Let's go to chapter 43, verse 1. But now, this is the same context, this period that we're entering now. We're already preaching Isaiah 40. So we're here. And what follows is the things that will be right on the heels of what is going on already. Thus says the Eternal that created you, O Jacob, and he that formed you, O Israel, fear not. This is God Almighty in heaven giving us instruction. (coughs) He says, fear not. Now, if we do fear, that means that we are rebelling against God. Right? We are denying or ignoring absolute, first-hand, direct instruction from God. When he says, O Jacob, speaking to his church in the end, and speaking to this nation as a whole, look to me and fear not, he means it. It's an order. It's a command. Now, if you fear anyway, what are you doing? You are committing idolatry. You're breaking the first commandment. Because you're taking what God Almighty in heaven, the creator of the universe, said, and going the other direction. So you're putting your feelings, your emotions, your fears, ahead of God's instruction. And that is idolatry just as Moses striking the rock was idolatry. He was putting his anger, his emotions, his feelings ahead of God's instruction and broke the first commandment and with it the other nine. Isn't this about as direct as it can get? Fear not. Now, do you worship idols or do you not? It's that simple. Hard to live with, hard to grasp. But this is what God lays before us. I will take care of you. Don't fear. Hard sayings. Uh, Verse 5. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your seed from the east and gather you from the west. I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, 
keep not them keep them not back. Bring my sons from far, and my daughters from the ends of the earth, even every one that is called by my name, for I have created him for my glory, I have formed him, yes, I have made him. God has made you and me what we are. We could not come to the Father or to Christ except the Spirit of the Father drew us. We could not have understood. Our minds could not have been opened. We would have been just as blind and deaf to it as our friends and relatives that we tried to impress with it. God created you and me, made us to be here today with his own hand and mind. You couldn't be here unless he had done that. Now let's man up and accept that and do what God says. You women can man up too. This is not sexist. It means all of us. Chapter 44. There's a lot in here about this because when we start preaching the gospel that he tells us in the message, he tells us in chapter 40 to preach in this spiritual and even physical wilderness. These things are going to ultimately be the result of that. Chapter 44, verse 2. Uh, Thus says the Eternal that made you and formed you from the womb, which will help you. Fear not, O Jacob, my servant, and you, Israel, or Jeshurun, whom I have chosen. Verse 8, fear you not, neither be afraid. Have not I told you from that time and have declared it? He had Isaiah write this a long time ago about you and me. He had it all figured out before we were ever born. Thousands of years before we were put here before we were called and answered that call and came to repentance and seeking God in our lives. Be not afraid. Have not I told you from that time and have declared it? You are even my witnesses. Is there a God beside me? Yes, there is no God. I know not any. He is the God of all creation, and He has called us to witness to that fact. He is calling a very, very small percentage of people, even of the church only about 10%, to follow through and be the witnesses on this earth before all mankind that He is the only God of the universe. That is our calling. That is what we are here for. That's what you were in those chairs there or on your couch at home today for. He did not call us just for our salvation. Herbert Armstrong was right when he used to tell us this isn't about your personal salvation It's about God and His work. Now, we can personally be saved in it, but the primary reason He called us was not because we 
were so much better than the rest of the people on the earth that we personally needed to be saved and He loved us more than anyone else. Hogwash! He called you and me to be His witnesses that He is Almighty God. There's a reason we are not to fear. There's a reason we are to live by faith and be willing to give up the opportunity to buy and sell. We are called for a great, mighty, and powerful purpose to show that God is God. That is our calling. That is our job. Are we ready to go there? Are we ready to be there? Are we ready to stand up and fear not, O worm Jacob, and show that God is God? That is a challenge. James, Peter, John, Jude stood up to that challenge. They were stoned, they were shipwrecked, they were despised, they were put in prison, they were killed exception of John, who may have been boiled in oil even though it didn't hurt him. Those who fled and said, I don't even know him on the night of his creation, or I mean his, his death. Cream, not cremation, well, you know what I mean. His sacrifice. Scared and ran. As cowards. When the Holy Spirit came, they were empowered. They stood. And they took whatever was thrown at them, even including death. Are you ready for that? Their testimonies are written, and we'll get to them in the next week or two. Because it's important. Now, that might be a good climax and finish for the... I guess I should quit anyway and shut up. I was going to finish Isaiah, but I'm past time. But that's a good place to leave it. So, see you then.